Epiphany is all about the manifestation, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ being the light of the world and the Redeemer of the world. And today we hear about a, a big miracle and the first one of Jesus where he reveals something about who he is. He reveals his power. And just that, that one little account in John that we heard it is loaded with big ideas. And what better event than to load with big ideas than a wedding? If you remember back to Advent, we were looking at Song of Songs and how particularly in that book, but also throughout Scripture, God's relationship to us is described in terms of a marriage or a wedding. Uh, Christ is the bridegroom, and, and we, the church, are his bride. In fact, the, the Bible basically begins and ends with a wedding. It begins with the, the marriage of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with the consummation of, of the marriage of the church to Christ in Revelation. I've been to dozens of weddings, and I try to, to pay attention uh, to, to what text couples choose for their wedding sermon. One of the most popular is the great passage from, from 1 Corinthians that, that goes, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. You've likely heard it before. St. Paul has a, has a little bit of a different spin on that today in our epistle lesson from Romans. And so as we consider the, the general theme of marriage in Scripture and what Jesus is revealing by his, his first miracle being at a wedding, I want to focus here on, on Paul's letter to the Romans and focus on, on the idea of love as Paul presents it here. And in a section about love, Paul has a lot to say about what we should do and how to do it. To our modern sensibilities, however, this would seem a little bit backwards. Because love, as our modern world defines it, uh, is not bound. It's to seek pleasure. And no one should tell you how to love or who to love. If something or someone gives me pleasure, that's love. And you don't have to look too far to, to see those two things equated. Love and pleasure. But pleasure is not love. And I think a lot of Christians have the idea that God created us for pleasure, to, to be happy. Well, that's not a biblical idea. God did not create us to seek pleasure, to do whatever gives us the, the most satisfaction or the most happiness. God created us to love. And to love is to actually make yourself less to give of yourself for someone else. To take a part of you and to give it to someone else for their benefit. And this, is the, this is the very first commandment God gave to Adam and Eve after he created them in his image and joined them together. He said, be fruitful and increase in number and to have dominion over the world. God is love. The nature of God is love, and he created male and female in his image in love to bear his loving image to the rest of the world through the procreation of children and the loving dominion or the taking care of all of creation. In other words, God created man and woman to love 
as he loved, which is to give ourselves for the benefit of others, whether that means our spouse or anyone else. And with whatever gifts God has given to us, he expects us to use those for the benefit of our neighbors, beginning with those closest to us. And so what this means is that very likely love is not pleasurable, at least all the time. It's hard work. And we might not like it all the time. And so Paul has to, has to qualify love here because it can be very tempting for us to simply act like we love others, to put on a show and to keep ourselves pretty happy without actually doing the hard work of love. So St. Paul says in verses 9 and 10, Do not just pretend to love others. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another with brotherly love. Think of others as deserving more honor than yourselves. This is a paradox. Sometimes love means hating. Jesus said the summary of the commandments is love. I think in our day that we have this idea that it means <clears throat> that the commandments themselves don't really matter as long as we have an, an attitude of affirmation and, and love for all people, no matter what they do. But if you love and affirm everything, then you really love nothing. And St. Paul says that this is hypocritical. That's really the word that he uses here when he says, do not just pretend to love others. Hypocrisy. If someone were to say, I love my wife, and then never go home to her, never sacrifice himself for her needs, or, or even uh, do the unthinkable, let a man break into the house and do whatever he wanted uh, to make himself happy, that whatever that would please him, he'd be a hypocrite, he'd be a terrible person. That's what Paul's talking about here. To love God and to love our neighbor is to love what God commands and to hate what God forbids. It means to hate murder, to hate adultery, to hate false witness, to hate coveting, and anything else forbidden by God. Love and hate must go together. If you love the sixth commandment that says you shall not commit adultery, it means you love marriage. You love the marriage that God has established, the lifelong union of one man and one woman. You love marriage, which is good, good for companionship, good for the bearing of, and raising of children, and, and good even for, for pleasure and intimacy. And then it means that you hate what is not good. You hate adultery. You hate divorce. You hate sex outside of marriage. You hate any type of union that is not what God has established. Love of what is good must include hatred of what is not good, of what is evil, or else it's hypocrisy. And actually, one of the biggest examples of hypocrites in the Bible were actually the rabbis in the New Testament, the priests, the Pharisees. And without being named, these guys actually play a part in Jesus' miracle of turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. At the wedding there, there are six stone jars of water uh, that John says were, were, were used for ceremonial cleansing. 
And they weren't clay because clay would get dirty. They were, used, they, they were made out of stone. And they were used for the Jewish rites of purification. And this was a ceremonial law that, that was invented by the Pharisees. It wasn't a wrong law. It wasn't a bad law. It just wasn't a law God had given them. And so the Pharisees and, and all these other people would use these, these jars to wash their hands upon entering a certain place. But it wasn't like, like walking into the Oregon library and, and rubbing hand sanitizer on so you wouldn't spread germs to everybody else. This was a ritual uh, that let whoever did it uh, know, uh, let other people know that they were especially good, that they were, that they were pretty good, that they were pretty clean. And in fact, ancient Jews used to joke about the Pharisees uh, that, that they could wash an insect and make it clean, something that, that was ceremonial, ceremonially unclean that couldn't be clean. Uh, the Pharisees would find a way to do it. And they simply want to look like they are loving other people. These guys don't, don't care about loving other people, not in the way that St. Paul intends. Uh, they, they keep the law because they love themselves. They want to look like they're loving other people. They're hypocrites. And so it's this filthy, hand-washing, even hypocritical water in these stone jars that Jesus chooses to use for his first miracle. And you've got to wonder you know, what the servants who are told by Mary to do whatever he tells you and then Jesus tells them to, to take this nasty water to the master of the banquet for him to drink. If I were them, I'd be afraid that I was going to lose my job at that point because they didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know it was going to become wine. That when the master tasted it, he wouldn't taste that nasty washing water. It would, it would be wine. And not some two-buck chuck, but the best wine imaginable. When Jesus changes water into wine from these ceremonial stone jars, he's signifying something. Jesus has come to fulfill the law, to love perfectly, to love completely, to love unconditionally. Jesus didn't have anything, to, didn't have to do anything at that wedding. He even responds to Mary when she comes to him. He says, what does this have to do with you and me? My time has not yet come. But the nature of God is love. It's not Jesus' problem, but he makes it his problem. He covers up the ceremonial sin of running out of wine at a wedding with more wine than can possibly be used by all these people. Jesus has come to fulfill the law of Moses, to be better than, than Moses, to be greater than Moses, to fill the law with all of its demands and all of its shame and all of our hypocrisy with something greater. He fills the law with his own perfect, sinless life given for you. A life that has loved absolutely perfectly and then he draws out not more rules and regulations for you to follow, and not more things to make you reminded of your sin and shame and filth, but wine, joyous, glad wine. And in fact, for you, 
a wine that is more than just wine, a wine that is also His blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins, shed on the altar of the cross when Jesus' time had come. And one of the realities that, that this marriage banquet of Jesus gives to us and that we pray for every week is a more fervent love towards one another. The Lord's Supper means that our filthy sins and shame have been cleansed and forgiven. It means our, our disunity and distance towards other people have been removed. It unites us with Jesus and it unites us with everyone else. If you struggle to love your spouse unconditionally, the Lord's Supper is for you. If you struggle to love your neighbor with brotherly love, the Lord's Supper is for you. Because Jesus gives you himself. And that's exactly what he did. He truly was devoted, as Paul says, to one another with brotherly love and thought of others as deserving more honor than himself. Jesus didn't get credit for, for doing anything at that wedding, for saving that wedding. No one except Mary and the servants knew what Jesus had done. Jesus gave the honor to the bridegroom. In fact, the master of the ceremony called the bridegroom up and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the guests have had plenty to drink, then the cheaper wine. You save the good wine until now. Jesus gives the honor of perfect love to us. His love. Love is to love in the way that God has loved. He takes on the problems of others. Uh, he, he takes a wedding and he makes it better. He takes what is bad and loves what is good completely. He loves sinners and gives them the joy of forgiveness. That's love. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be forevermore. Amen.